Section 3 of the Book of Sir Marco Polo, The Venetian, Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Sir Marco Polo, The Venetian, Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 2, by Rusticello da Pisa. Translated by Henry Yule. Book 2nd, Part 2, Chapters 45-48 to 48. Book 2, Part 2, Journey to the West and Southwest of Cathay Chapter 45, Concerning the Province of Tibet After those five days' march that I spoke of, you enter a province which has been sorely ravaged, and this was done in the wars of Mongul Khan. There are indeed towns and villages and hamlets, but all harried and destroyed. In this region you find quantities of canes, full three palms in girth and fifteen paces in length, with some three palms interval between the joints. And let me tell you that merchants and other travellers through that country are wont at nightfall to gather these canes and make fires of them. For as they burn, they make such loud reports that the lions and bears and other wild beasts are greatly frightened and make off as fast as possible. In fact, nothing will induce them to come nigh a fire of that sort. So you see, the travellers make those fires to protect themselves and their cattle from the wild beasts which have so greatly multiplied since the devastation of the country. And it is this great multiplication of the wild beasts that prevents the country from being reoccupied. In fact, but for the help of these canes, which make such a noise and burning that the beasts are terrified and kept at a distance, no one would be able even to travel through the land. I will tell you how it is that the canes make such a noise. The people cut the green canes, of which there are vast numbers, and set fire to a heap of them at once. After they have been a while burning, they burst asunder, and this makes such a loud report that you might hear it ten miles off. In fact, anyone unused to this noise, who should hear it unexpectedly, might easily go into a swoon or die of fright. But those who are used to it care nothing about it. Hence, those who are not used to it stuff their ears well with cotton, and wrap up their heads and faces with all the clothes they can muster and so they get along until they have become used to the sound. Tis just the same with horses. Those which are unused to these noises are so alarmed by them that they break away from their halters and heel ropes, and many a man has lost his beast in this way. So those who would avoid losing their horses take care to tie all four legs and peg the ropes down strongly, and to wrap the heads and eyes and ears of the animals closely, and so they save them. But horses also, when they have heard the noise several times, cease to mind it, I tell you the truth, however, when I say that the first time you hear it, nothing can be more alarming. And yet, in spite of it all, the lions and bears and other wild beasts will sometimes come and do great mischief, for their numbers are great in those tracks. You ride for twenty days without finding any inhabited spot, so that travellers are obliged to carry all their provisions with them, and are constantly falling in with those wild beasts which are so numerous and so dangerous. After that, you come at length to a tract where there are towns and villages in considerable numbers. The people of those towns have a strange custom in regard to marriage, which I will now relate. No man of that country would on any consideration take to wife a girl who was a maid, for they say a wife is nothing worth unless she has been used to consort with men. And their custom is this, that when travellers come that way, the old women of the place get ready and take their unmarried daughters or other girls related to them and go to the strangers who are passing, and make over the young women to whomsoever will accept them, and the travellers take them accordingly, and do their pleasure, after which the girls are restored to the old women who brought them, 
for they are not allowed to follow the strangers away from their home. In this manner, people travelling that way, when they reach a village or hamlet or other inhabited place, shall find perhaps twenty or thirty girls at their disposal. And if the travellers lodge with those people, they shall have as many young women as they could wish coming to court them. You must know, too, that the traveller is expected to give the girl who has been with him a ring or some other trifle, something, in fact, that she can show as a lover's token when she comes to be married. And it is for this in truth, and for this alone, that they follow that custom. For every girl is expected to obtain at least twenty such tokens in the way I have described before she can be married. And those who have most tokens, and so can show they have been most run after, are in the highest esteem, and most sought in marriage, because they say the charms of such a one are greatest. But after marriage, these people hold their wives very dear, and would consider it a great villainy for a man to meddle with another's wife, and thus, though the wives have before marriage acted as you have heard, they are kept with great care from light conduct afterwards. Now I have related to you this marriage custom as a good story to tell, and to show what a fine country that is for young fellows to go to. The people are idolaters and an evil generation, holding it no sin to rob and maltreat. In fact, they are the greatest brigands on earth. They live by the chase, as well as on their cattle and the fruits of the earth. I should tell you also that in this country there are many of the animals that produce musk, which are called in the Tatar language, guderi. Those rascals have great numbers of large and fine dogs, which are of great service in catching the musk beasts, and so they procure great abundance of musk. They have none of the great Khan's paper money, but use salt instead of money. They are very poorly clad, for their clothes are only of the skins of beasts, and of canvas, and of buckram. They have a language of their own, and they are called Tibet, and this country of Tibet forms a very great province, of which I will give you a brief account. Chapter 46. Further Discourse Concerning Tibet. This province called Tibet is of very great extent. The people, as I have told you, have a language of their own, and they are idolaters, and they border on Manzi and sundry other regions. Moreover, they are very great thieves. The country is, in fact, so great that it embraces eight kingdoms, and a vast number of cities and villages. It contains in several quarters rivers and lakes in which gold dust is found in great abundance. Cinnamon also grows there in great plenty. Coral is in great demand in this country and fetches a high price, for they delight to hang it around the necks of their women and of their idols. They have also in this country plenty of fine woolens and other stuffs, and many kinds of spices are produced there which are never seen in our country. Among this people, too, you find the best enchanters and astrologers that exist in all that quarter of the world. They perform such extraordinary marvels and sorceries by diabolic art that it astounds one to see or even hear of them. So I will relate none of them in this book of ours. People would be amazed if they heard them, but it would serve no good purpose. These people of Tibet are an ill-conditioned race. They have mastiff dogs as big as donkeys, which are capital at seizing wild beasts, and in particular the wild oxen which are called bayamini, very great and fierce animals. They have also sundry other kinds of sporting dogs and excellent lana falcons, and sakers, swift in flight and well trained, which are got in the mountains of the country. Now I have told you in brief all that is to be said about Tibet, and so we will leave it, and tell you about another province that is called Kaindu. As regards Tibet, However, you should understand that it is subject to the great Khan. So, likewise, all the other kingdoms, regions, and provinces which are described in this book are subject to the great Khan. Nay, even those other kingdoms, regions, and provinces of which I had occasion to speak at the beginning of the book, as belonging to the son of Argon, the lord of the Levant, 
are also subject to the Emperor, for the former holds his dominion of the Khan, and his liegemen and kinsmen of the Blood Imperial. So you must know that from this province forward, all the provinces mentioned in our book are subject to the Great Khan, but even if this be not specially mentioned, you must understand that it is so. Now, let us have done with this matter, and I will tell you about the province of Kaindu. Chapter 47. Concerning the province of Kaindu. Kaindu is a province lying towards the west, and there is only one king in it. The chief city is also called Kaindu, and stands at the upper end of the province. The people are idolaters, subject to the great Khan, and they have plenty of towns and villages. There is a lake in the country in which are found pearls, which are white, but not round. But the great Khan will not allow them to be fished, for if people were to take as many as they could find there, the supply would be so vast that pearls would lose their value, and come to be worth nothing. Only when it is his pleasure they take from the lake so many as he may desire, but any one attempting to take them on his own account would be incontinently put to death. There is also a mountain in this country wherein they find a kind of stone called turquoise in great abundance, and it is a very beautiful stone. These also the emperor does not allow to be extracted without his special order. I must tell you of a custom that they have in this country regarding their women. No man considers himself wronged if a foreigner or any other man dishonour his wife or daughter or sister or any woman of his family, but on the contrary he deems such intercourse a piece of good fortune. And they say that it brings the favour of their gods and idols and great increase of temporal prosperity. For this reason they bestow their wives on foreigners and other people as I will tell you. When they fall in with any stranger in want of a lodging, they are all eager to take him in, and as soon as he has taken up his quarters, the master of the house goes forth, telling him to consider everything at his disposal, and after saying so, he proceeds to his vineyards, or his fields, and comes back no more till the stranger has departed. The latter abides in the caitiff's house, be it three days or be it four, enjoying himself with the fellow's wife, or daughter, or sister, or whatsoever woman of the family it best likes him and as long as he abides there, he leaves his hat or some other token hanging at the door to let the master of the house know that he is still there. As long as the wretched fellow sees that token, he must not go in, and such is the custom over all that province. The money matters of the people are conducted in this way. They have golden rods which they weigh, and they reckon its value by its weight in sagi, but they have no coined money. Their small change again is made in this way. They have salt which they boil and set in a mould, flat below and round above, and every piece from the mould weighs about half a pound. Now, eighty moulds of this salt are worth one saggio of fine gold, which is a weight so called. So this salt serves them for small change. The musk animals are very abundant in that country, and thus of musk also they have great store. They have likewise plenty of fish which they catch in the lake in which the pearls are produced, Wild animals such as lions, bears, wolves, stags, bucks and roes exist in great numbers, and there are also vast quantities of fowl of every kind. Wine of the vine they have none, but they make a wine of wheat and rice and sundry good spices, and very good drink it is. There grows also in this country a quantity of clove. The tree that bears it is a small one, with leaves like laurel, but longer and narrower, and with a small white flower like the clove. They have also ginger and cinnamon in great plenty besides other spices which never reach our countries, so we need say nothing about them. Now we may leave this province, as we have told you all about it, but let me tell you first of this same country of Kaindu that you ride through it fifteen days, constantly meeting with towns and villages, 
with people of the same description that I have mentioned. After riding those fifteen days, you come to a river called Brius, which terminates the province of Kaindu. In this river is found much gold dust, and there is also much cinnamon on its banks. It flows to the ocean sea. There is no more to be said about this river, so I will now tell you about another province called Karajan, as you shall hear in what follows. Chapter 48 Concerning the Province of Karajan When you have passed that river, you enter on the province of Karajan, which is so large that it includes seven kingdoms. It lies towards the west. The people are idolaters, and they are subject to the great Khan. A son of his, however, is there as king of the country, by name Essentimur, a very great and rich and puissant prince, and he well and justly rules his dominion, for he is a wise man and a valiant. After leaving the river that I spoke of, you go five days' journey towards the west, meeting with numerous towns and villages. The country is one in which excellent horses are bred, and the people live by cattle and agriculture. They have a language of their own which is passing hard to understand. At the end of those five days' journey, you come to the capital which is called Yachi, a very great and noble city in which are numerous merchants and craftsmen. The people are of sundry kinds, for there are not only Saracens and idolaters, but also a few Nestorian Christians. They have wheat and rice in plenty. Howbeit they never eat wheat and bread, because in that country it is unwholesome. Rice they eat, and make of it sundry messes, besides a kind of drink which is very clear and good, and makes a man drunk just as wine does. Their money is such as I will tell you. They use for the purpose certain white porcelain shells that are found in the sea, such as are sometimes put on dogs' collars, and eighty of these porcelain shells pass for a single weight of silver, equivalent to two Venice groats, i.e. twenty-four piccoli. Also, eight such weights of silver count equal to one such weight of gold. They have brine wells in this country, from which they make salt, and all the people of those parts make a living by this salt. The king too, I can assure you, gets a great revenue from this salt. There is a lake in this country of a good hundred miles in compass, in which are found great quantities of the best fish in the world, fish of great size and of all sorts. They reckon it no matter for a man to have intimacy with another's wife, provided the woman be willing. Let me tell you also that the people of that country eat their meat raw, whether it be of mutton, beef, buffalo, poultry, or any other kind. Thus the poor people will go to the shambles and take the raw liver as it comes from the carcass and cut it small, and put it in a sauce of garlic and spices and so eat it, and other meat in like manner raw, just as we eat meat that is dressed. Now I will tell you about a further part of the province of Karajan, of which I have been speaking. End of section 3